Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to this episode of What Went Wrong. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Lizzie Bassett, here with the other one. Which one are you? Chris Winterbauer. There we and go. welcome back, guys, to your favorite podcast, Full Stop, that just so happens to be about the making of movies and how it's nearly impossible to make a good one, and we should cherish all of them. Before we dive in, guys, at the time of this recording... We have just passed 500 reviews. In fact, we have 501, well, I guess I should say ratings. We probably have a far fewer reviews, but we have 501 ratings Yay! on uh, Apple Podcasts, and that's thanks to you guys. You're the real MVPs. Uh, we just wanted to say thank you to everybody that has taken the time to rate our podcast on Apple, even those of you that have given us one star, and there are a few of you. <laughs> But we would like to uh, do a couple call-outs, harken back to the earlier days when we read more of these out loud to you guys. Great Reasons to Revisit Older Movies is the title of this one. Uh, Tried out their eps on The Mummy and the Exorcist, and I'm amused and impressed by the hosts and their info enough that I'll subscribe and give it its earned five-star review. Thank you. Thank you, Calvin, too. Uh, let's just see. Here's another full one. A good one. Full Favorite podcast, full stop. I finally feel like I have friends who talk about and think about movies like I do. Well, my pal, mal pal, you don't have friends, but we are thrilled that you have this podcast now to get you through your day, and we appreciate you. Usually better than watching the movie. So... We don't want to put down movies, but in some instances, we can see how that would be true. Uh, one of these folks did compare it to a college course, and so we would like your email address so we can start charging you yeah. tuition. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, student loans. We're going to need those. Um, we <laughs> we unfortunately have offended some people. I don't think we're going to uh, address those. No, no, um, but there is one, Chris, that you brought up to me earlier this week that I, I think we actually did want to address. I'm guessing a gentleman wrote this uh, review. Yeah, it just it, by yeah. the way, it, it reads <laughs> they enjoyed a couple of the episodes, but then they called out that we mispronounced person's name a few times, and there was a piece of technology that I had not heard of that any a quote self-respecting film buff would know about. And just to be clear, I don't respect myself, but 
this individual did call us sloppy amateurs. <laughs> and I like to think of us as amateurs, but not necessarily sloppy. However, they did ask the question, what are their credentials? And that did make me realize that we have not properly introduced ourselves in a long time. And so we thought we could take two minutes right now to quickly explain who we are, what the origins of this podcast were, and, and what our goals are, and kind of how we get our information. So uh, Lizzie, do you want to kick it off with a little quick intro? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I know something in that review said something along the lines of these are not film historians. You're correct. That's true. We are not film historians. I am a podcast producer, so I, I am actually doing what I do professionally as well. I work for Wondery. That's at my day job. And I used to work for IMDb, which was wonderful. I love movies. I've always loved movies. And I particularly have an affinity for older movies. So that's a lot of what I've done on the podcast, a lot of what I hope to continue to do. Very fascinated by early Hollywood and obviously a big fan of the podcast, You Must Remember This, which if you've never listened to that... Listen to ours first, but then go listen to that because it's great. So that's who I am, certifiably not a film historian. But in terms of how we kind of prep for these episodes, I'll cover it a little bit briefly before Chris introduces himself. We do not just read the Wikipedia page, which I would hope that you all can tell that a lot of work and research does go into these episodes. We do make sure that we are double-checking everything, citing everything. Obviously, sometimes I'm going to get stuff wrong, as I have in the past. But we do want to make sure that we're presenting things as accurately as we can and responsibly as we can. And if I'm being irresponsible, I usually use the word allegedly before it. So if you listen to that, that's what's happening. Exactly. Yeah, we try to find first uh, person accounts or we read books written on the making of these films. We watch documentaries about them. And a lot of the great resources that we find are actually the coverage in the trades mm -hmm. that has been archived from the time when the film was made, as will be the case today. I'm Chris Winterbauer. I'm a writer and a director. I've directed two movies, Worm, which is on Hulu, W-Y-R-M, and Moonshot, which was on HBO Max, but now can be rented on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, etc. Moonshot was with New Line Cinema. I have also written for Amblin, Vertigo. I have a project with Universal right now, Film Nation. So in total, I've sold five projects on a screenwriting front, and I've directed two films in the last five years when I got started coming out of grad school. I went to USC Film School, studied sound there, and so I do know a decent amount about production and post-production sound and so that's my background. Again, I'm not a film historian. I don't know everything about film. I don't know everything about film production. But what I do try to do and our goal is to use the experience we do have around movies in order to demystify certain things and explain certain processes that seem simple when you watch a movie, but in actuality are really complicated or really difficult to pull off. Again, Thanks, guys, for sitting through our reintroduction. And again, thank you so much for the ratings and reviews. We really appreciate it. But this podcast is all killer, no filler. So let's get to the film that we're discussing today. Not 2021's Dune. Not no. 2023's Dune. We're talking 1984's Dune by David Lynch. I got to tell you, Chris, there's for all the faults that this movie has... There's one thing it has that Denis Villeneuve's Dune does not. Do you know what it is? 
It's that damn pug. Oh, the pug. <laughs> it's the pug. I love the pug. The pug is incredible. Patrick Stewart carrying a pug into battle. I didn't know that I needed that, but I did. Yeah. It's great. It. Uh, you know what's funny? We're not... More pug. It was, seems like that was a pretty arbitrary decision, and it's not really a big part of my research, so I'm already letting you down. But let's leave that. Well, let's leave that. I'm glad we talked to you. Fuck you, Chris. I love no, that the pug. pug. Is great. The pug is great. Okay. Dune, released in 1984. It was written and directed by David Lynch. It is a 1980s epic space opera, and it had a long and troubled journey to the silver screen. But before we get to what went wrong, here are the basic facts. Dune is based on the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert of the same name. It was writer-director David Lynch's third film, following Eraserhead, his debut, and The Elephant Man, his sophomore feature. It starred Kyle MacLachlan, Francesca Annis, Brad Dorif, Patrick Stewart, Max von Sydow, Jose Ferrer, Sean Young, and Sting, amongst many other wonderful performers. It really is an incredible international cast. Yeah. The film was produced by Dino De Laurentiis and his daughter, more importantly, Rafaela De Laurentiis, who was actually the main producer on the film. It was distributed by Universal Pictures when they were owned by MCA and they were being run by Sid Scheinberg, some names that you guys have heard throughout this podcast. And here, as always, is the IMDb logline of an incredibly convoluted and long story. A Duke's son leads desert warriors against the galactic emperor and his father's evil nemesis to free their desert world from the emperor's rule. That's the last like 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, exactly. Movie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's that's the last 15 minutes. So Lizzie, you said you had not seen Dune before, I believe, meaning this I version. This version I had not. I obviously You've seen I the saw... Villeneuve Yes, One. which I love, and I actually started to rewatch before this, because I will say, this did make me very excited for part two, because this movie, boy, the pacing is weird. For yeah. very specific <laughs> reasons that we'll get into. So, have you, and you have you ever read the book? I haven't, but now I, I think maybe I want to, yeah. It's really good. I think, I read it about 10 years ago, and... I do think it's a very formative book for a lot of young men who see themselves as a young Paul Atreides. Of course, none of us are. Well, you know what's interesting, though, is that I I felt like there is a there is a truly stark difference between this one and the Villeneuve one, which is that his is so much more interested in the women. Oh, yes. He changed a number of things. I think most specifically, obviously, Chani's character, who is played by Zendaya, has a much bigger presence through the visions that Paul has, whereas Sean Young's character kind of just shows up out of nowhere in this one. Yeah, she gets the, to do the, nothing, she, she doesn't really get anything to do. And then obviously, whereas Princess Irulan, Virginia Madsen in this one, has all of the voiceover, that character was kind of written out of the first instance of Denis Villeneuve one, and will then, I believe she's being played by Florence Pugh in the yeah, second Yeah, it is half. Florence Pugh. But Lady Jessica is the big character who gets like nothing to do, I feel like, in this version, excuse yes. me, the 1984 one. And they make her character really interesting. Not just her. I feel like they're more interested in the like I, Mother Superior is not the right name for her either, but um, her, her as well, who's Charlotte Rampling in, in the new one. But yeah, that was definitely like, that's, it's a big, it's a pretty stark difference. I think that in the Denis one, it's a, it's a world that seems outwardly dominated by men, but is actually secretly ruled by women. Yeah. 
Whereas in this original one, it feels like it's just more dominated by men, more obviously dominated by men throughout it. So let's get into the book. So the story of Dune begins with novelist Franklin Patrick Herbert Jr., more commonly known as Frank Herbert. A lot of Northwest, Pacific Northwest connections in this movie. He was born in Tacoma, Washington. Shout out to the aroma of Tacoma to any of my friends from (laughs) that part of the world. There was a pulp factory there that made it real stanky. He was a bit of an autodidact. He worked as a reporter and as a journalist, and eventually he landed at the University of Washington, where young Kyle MacLachlan would go years later. Oh, and where David, producer of this podcast, went. Uh, He stumbled into a creative writing class. He started writing short stories. He got published in all of these sci-fi-oriented magazines, and his first novel, The Dragon and the Sea, was published in 1956, and it really exemplified kind of what a visionary he was. It took place in a world with dwindling oil supplies. It follows these secret nuclear submarines that travel into enemy territory to steal from foreign nations' oil reserves. And so, I mean, this is like in the 1950s, and it's basically predicting climate change in a weird way. So he's very much ahead of his time. And so he had this idea for Dune in 1959 when he was researching the Oregon Dunes for a magazine article he was supposed to write. He never ended up writing the story, but the idea proved fertile ground from which he could build up this narrative of Paul Atreides and the the spice melange that he ended melange. up yeah, making his epic. <laughs> so at the time, he was supported by his wife's income. And he spent the next five years writing the book. And it was published in 1965 after being rejected by 20 publishers. 20? 20. It, I don't know what this is about. I don't know what a Kiswatch Hatteritz is. I don't know what a Maudib is. I don't know what any of this is. And then it finally got published and it became a critical success. He won the Nebula Award for Best Novel, and he shared the Hugo Award with Robert Zelazny, and he went on to turn Dune into a series, becoming one of the most commercially successful authors of his time. So this this book was extremely popular. By the time the film got off the ground in the early 1980s, he had written four sequels to the original Dune. Dune Messiah, Children of Dune, God Emperor of Dune, Heretics of Dune. And at that point, 13 million copies of these books had been sold, which is... That's a lot. I mean, best, best, best seller. Yeah. Now, of course, the issue with adapting Dune is threefold. One, it takes place in a world utterly alien to ours. Two, it's extremely long. And three, Mm -hmm. it's extremely complex with a quasi-feudal political system and semi-mystical religious institution, the Manet Gesserit, at the center of its narrative. Also, I will pronounce some of these Dune words wrong. Bear with me. Yeah, I think you just did. (laughs) Bene Gesserit, right? Bene Gesserit, yeah. I always wanted to Frenchify it, and it doesn't work. So there's, uh, of course, many attempts to get this movie off the ground, as there always are with big books like this. So the first approach uh, producer who to officially approach the book was Arthur P. Jacobs. And at face value, he actually seems like a great fit. He had produced Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah. And he had just done its sequel, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and was in production on the third film, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, all of which are very fun. And so he optioned the book, and he intended to produce it for $15 million at the time. And for reference, Planet of the Apes was a $6 million film, and 2001 Space Odyssey was about $11 million. So this would have been a a big movie at the time. Still probably not enough no 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 no. absolutely absolutely not enough money i'm just saying that's that's yeah. that's a yeah, good yeah. amount no, of money it's a lot. at the time sure. so then he hired david lean 
who directed Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. To direct it, which I mean, great. The guy shot totally Sun Dunes. makes sense. Yep. That's a huge, sprawling epic. It's also very long. Yep. And the screenwriter of Lawrence Arabia of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago, Robert Bolt, to oh. come on and write the film. Both great movies. So according to the New York Times, Jacobs's option was for nine years. So he had nine years to produce a movie from this book, which is a very long time for an yeah. option. Of course, the production stalls because he's making Planet of the Apes. They decide they're going to start filming in 1974. However, midway through 1973, Jacobs died of a heart attack. Oh, no. And so the option got tied up with his estate, and the project was abandoned by David Lean and Robert Bolt. Hmm. Honestly, this version of Dune is the version of all of the ones we're going to talk about. This is the one that sounds like it could have been the best. I was going to say, I think that might have been really good. You have a sci-fi producer and a very grounded, epic storyteller behind the camera and behind the typewriter. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a really good combination. Yeah. Okay. It's not meant to be. 1974. This consortium from France comes forward and they purchase the rights of the film with the express purpose of having one specific director make this movie. Have you ever heard of the Chilean auteur director Alejandro Jodorowsky? No. Have you ever seen El Topo or The Holy Mountain? No, and that man's going to come after me again in the reviews, and I don't (laughs) care. You're dead. Um, So he is, it's like he's if Salvador Dali were crossed with David Lynch. Like, that's who this guy is. He is out there. He is wild. He was, like, a huge cult director. Both of those films were, like, Midnight Circus cult hit films. He's a psychedelic acid trip is what I would describe, you know, his movies as. And so, basically, legend has it that after the success of his first two films, this French producer and millionaire, Michael Sedou... Relation to... Leah? Leah Seydoux, the incredible French actress who you may have recently seen in No Time to Die. In fact, Michael is her grand uncle. He offered to fund Yodorovsky's next film, whatever it is. And Yodorovsky says, I want to adapt Dune. And Seydoux says, okay, great. And then Yodorovsky said, okay, I need to go read it now. He had actually never read the book. He had just heard that Dune was like a great sci-fi book that somebody should try to adapt. So Seydoux rented a castle for Yodorowsky to use as a writing space where he went and wrote the script. And once he finished the script, he set out to assemble what he called his seven samurai. And these were like the seven creatives that were gonna help him make the movie. There is nothing worse than recording a podcast at home with bad Wi-Fi. It's horrible. I can't hear Chris. He thinks I'm ignoring him, but it's not my fault. He's just a bunch of cubes with a robot voice. Thankfully, an amazing co-working space called Industrious gave me a free trial. And let me tell you, their Wi-Fi is fast. Industrious is beautiful. It's quiet. The staff are so nice. Shout out to Sabrina at the front desk, who immediately showed me where the snacks were. There are over 160 locations, and they're all a little different. The location Chris and I go to is so cute and cozy in an old brick building with skylights, but if we wanted a sleek high-rise, Industrious has another office just down the street. They've got flexible membership options, so whether you're a hybrid worker like me or a team of 20 people, Industrious will take care of you, and there's no long-term commitment. Here's the best part. They're offering you, our listeners, a free week of co-working. 
Visit industriousoffice.com, click join now and use code WWW to redeem a free week of co-working when you take a tour. So go forth and use their wicked fast Wi-Fi. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So the first was Jean Mobius Girard, an acclaimed French comic artist. And he did Makes all sense. of these incredible, like crazy ship designs. They're really wild. According to a profile on the film produced by BBC in 2019, Jodorowsky had Mobius storyboard the entire film. He produced 3,000 drawings of every individual shot that Jodorowsky was going to have in the film. Oh, my God. And the film was going to open with an unbroken shot spanning the entire universe. And then it was going to end the film with Paul Atreides being murdered, morphing into a sentient planet and then flying away to spread good vibes across the universe. What? I don't think that's in the book. Nope, it's not. He was going to change a lot of stuff from the book. Okay. But he hired really great people. So then he hired this young kid out of USC, Dan O'Bannon. And if you remember Dan O'Bannon's name, it's because he was the screenwriter of Alien, but he hadn't written it yet. So he had come up with John Carpenter and made these special effects for John Carpenter's first film, Dark Star. Mm. So Jodorowsky hires him to handle Dune's special effects. O'Bannon then hires H.R. Geiger, who would go on to create the alien design yeah. for Ridley Scott's Alien to design the Harkonnen world and technologies. I mean, this sounds cool. It sounds cool. So H.R. Geiger comes in. Designs all these biomechanical creatures and whatnot. He then hires Pink Floyd to do the score. I mean, right? Great. And then he casts he casts his son, <laughs> Brontus, to play Paul. Brontus, not a, not a name that stuck around. <laughs> <laughs> no. And then he added Mick Jagger, David Carradine, Udo Kier, and Orson Welles. <laughs> To the cast. Was Orson Welles Harkonnen? Orson Welles was cast as Baron Harkonnen, and he actually only agreed to do the film if Jodorowsky would buy him dinner every single night at his favorite Parisian restaurant. Yeah, that adds up. So, like, Orson Welles, just, like, pay me in food. I'm good. <laughs> oh, the French champagne. If anybody out there doesn't know very quickly what Chris is referencing, go look on YouTube and search Orson Welles champagne. There are a series of, well, it's just one commercial he was trying to make, but you can see the outtakes. Uh, I won't spoil it he for you. He was so drunk during the filming. He's hammered. So the wildest addition to the film was Salvador Dali himself, famous artist, who agreed to play the Emperor of the Galaxy so long as Jodorowsky paid him at a rate of $100,000 per hour which would fulfill his dream of becoming the highest paid actor of all time. <laughs> and and so so Okay. He Yodorowsky agreed and said we will only need him for 1 hour cuz I will only shoot one shot basically of him and the rest of the movie will be a stunt double or from a distance. I guess that's possible. I mean, him. the emperor doesn't even show up in part 1. I know it's Christopher Walken in part 2, but yeah. 
Yeah, he's in. He's obviously in David Lynch's yes. version. You're saying in Denis Villeneuve's But even then, he's not in it a ton in in no, this one. He's not. Um, so I, I, I'm not going to go into all the details on Yodorowsky's Dune because it could be its own episode. But suffice it to say that despite storyboarding, casting, and designing the entire movie, no one in Hollywood would finance it. Basically, there was one big sticking point. The script was so long that the movie would be 10 hours. That feels that feels like a decent sticking point. Yeah. So he refused to cut it down. Now, Jodorowsky apparently later said that his understanding was that it was supposed to be a movie and multiple episodes of like a follow-up miniseries. But that's not how it was being pitched around town at the time. No, also, when has that, that ever really happened? Done. Yeah. Exactly. It wasn't being done in the 70s. So at this point, they had spent $2 million on developing Guys. this movie. Just between hiring the artists, designing the storyboards, writing the scripts, renting the castles, <laughs> you know, paying for Orson Welles dinners. Sure. Uh, so the project grinds to a halt, uh, but it does have big ramifications, both on this film and a lot of other films moving forward. So Dan O'Bannon took H.R. Geiger with him to work on a movie that O'Bannon wrote called Alien. And that's how we ended up with the alien creature. Oh, wow. Further, the Dune Illustrated screenplay... It was all the drawings that Mobius had yeah. done, plus the screenplay that was passed around Hollywood, started to influence a ton of sci-fi works that would follow. Most specifically, The Fifth Element is the big yes. one that pulls a ton, because obviously Luc Besson, French, he grew up with Mobius comics. Well, Blade Runner, too. Right, and The Terminator and Blade Runner, yeah. of course. There's actually a great documentary that I recommend that you guys should watch called Yodorowsky's Dune. You can see it online. It's an amazing documentary about what some people consider to be the greatest movie never made, hmm. which is his, his version of Dune. I'm going to leave it there on that version so we can keep trucking forward to David Lynch. Move it along. At the end of the 1970s, a new and I would say somewhat unexpected producer steps into the fold and purchases the rights. And again, purchases the original option. So the option is now changing hands again from the French consortium. And this is Dino De Laurentiis. And I'm, I'm sure most of you have heard Dino De Laurentiis' name or you've seen his company logo ahead of a movie. He was an Italian producer. He had grown up selling spaghetti made by his father's pasta factory. No joke. And then World War II broke out. And a few years later, he fell into film production. So in 1946, his company, De Laurentiis got into film production, and he had a number of early successes, including La Strada and Knights of Kiberia. Those are both uh, Fellini films. So uh, in the 1970s, he made a number of movies that solidified him as kind of a real player in the Hollywood scene. Uh, a few of them that I've seen, Serpico, mm -hmm. Death Wish, Mandingo, Three Days of the Condor. Mm -hmm. Of course, he had done a lot of schlockier fare. He did Orca, that killer whale horror movie. Oh, I don't know if not familiar. Yeah, and he did Flash Gordon and, of course, the 1977 remake of King Kong. And this is a quote that I found. Uh, I got this from uh, Roger Ebert. So this is apparently what Dino De Laurentiis said about Barbara Streisand and why he didn't cast her in King Kong. And I'm going to have to do an accent because it's written with an accent. But, quote, it's a no good have two monsters in one movie. <laughs> Listen, from what we've heard about Babs, he ain't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that did make me like, you know, Delorentis a lot from that, from that one qu uh, quote. So in 1976, Delorentis renegotiates the option, buys it from the French consortium, and agrees to let Frank Herbert take a crack at writing the screenplay. Is that 18 hours long? 
Well, uh, yeah, it was 180 or so pages and apparently just didn't. Even Frank oh. Herbert admitted it, it didn't work. It just didn't work. Yeah. Now, not as long as I no, would yeah, have feared. No, a lot shorter. It just, yeah, it just didn't work. So in 1979, there's kind of an interesting twist of fate. Because of Yodorowsky's Dune, Ridley Scott's Alien gets released. Or right. at least because of Yodorowsky's Dune, it, this specific version of Alien. It looks the way that Alien, it does, yeah. It looks the way that it does. So Ridley Scott now explodes onto the commercial sci-fi scene mm-hmm. with this film. It made $80 million against an $11 million budget. Yeah, kick And that ass. was in the United States alone on its you know, first run. So De Laurentiis moves quickly. He offers Scott the chance to direct the next great sci-fi epic. Remember, Star Wars had just come out mm-hmm. two years before. Scott agrees. And according to one source, he initially tried to hire prolific sci-fi writer Harlan Ellison to write the script. And if you don't know who Harlan Ellison is, he is most known for writing this very famous Star Trek episode, I would say most famous within film and television, called The City on the Edge of Forever, which is considered to be the greatest Star Trek episode ever made for the original series. Hmm. He also wrote hundreds of novellas and short stories and teleplays, but he turned Ridley Scott down. I mention his name because he will come up again at the end of this episode. So then Rudy Wurlitzer was brought on to write the script. He had just written Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid for Sam Peckinpah. And much like Denis Villeneuve eventually wanted to, Scott's intent was to split the book into two films. I mean, I you have to. Like, I, I don't... You have to. Yeah. Exactly. So this production got pretty far down the road. Scott actually moved to Pinewood Studios in England mm-hmm. to begin working on the project. They brought H.R. Geiger back onto the project to do storyboards while Wurlitzer wrote the script. So in August of 1980, they shared the script with Frank Herbert. Herbert didn't like it. He felt the plot had been oversimplified. And it's kind of like, dude, your script, your book is 800 pages long. We have to simplify it. Stuff's going to get cut. Exactly. So at the end of... 1980, they had done two more drafts of the script, including one that had an incestuous relationship between Paul and his mother, Jessica, which like TBH in the Denis version. Come on. You know, Timmy and Rebecca Ferguson are like. It's there there are undertones for sure, although they got the hots for each other. Yeah. I mean, it would be more viable in David Lynch's version, considering they are the same age. Um they're actually not. They're 11 years apart. They're actually exactly same amount distance apart in age as Rebecca Ferguson and Timothy Chalamet. Really? I think it's just because Chalamet looks so much younger. He's actually a little older than Kyle McLaughlin was when he shot the 1984 Dune. Hmm. The primary reason this all falls apart, because obviously we didn't get to see Ridley Scott's Dune. Right. We actually talked about yes. in our Blade Runner episode. Right. Ridley Scott's brother died unexpectedly of cancer. And it seems like it freaked Ridley Scott out. And so here's the quote from Paul Salmon's book, Ridley Scott, The Making of His Movies. Quote, but I also realized that Dune was going to take a lot more work, at least two and a half years worth. And I didn't have the heart to attack that because my brother, Frank, unexpectedly died of cancer while I was prepping the picture. Frankly, that freaked me out. So I went to Dino and told him the script was his. My guess is that he really just felt like it was going to take a lot more work to get the script into place. I mean, there are just so many huge elements in this story. Folding space and time, the guild navigators, sandworms. Yeah. You know, it's so abstract and it's so huge. I could just imagine if you go through a family tragedy and you're just like, I need need to go make something. There's no way. Yeah, this is not the thing that you take on in that situation. No. So he left to go make Blade Runner. 
And that's why we have Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. And go listen to our episode of Blade Runner. And that also nearly killed Ridley Scott making that movie. So, you know, it cuts both ways in these instances. In 1981, the original option that Arthur Jacobs had signed came to an end. So De Laurentiis negotiates a new contract with Herbert, and he bought the rights to the book and all of its sequels, both written and unwritten. So he's doubling down on Dune. He's like, I'm not out of the Dune picture. And so this is where things take, in my opinion, like a really unexpected turn, because I feel like everybody up until this point actually has made a lot of sense who they've gone after, right? Totally. Okay. So for the prior few years, beginning with the film Hurricane, which if you haven't seen it, don't, uh, Dino De Laurentiis had begun to introduce his daughter, Rafaela De Laurentiis, to the family business. So she was 23 during the filming of Hurricane, which they shot in Bora Bora, and there was not sufficient housing on the island for the cast and crew. So Dino sat her down and said, you're going to build me a hotel for us to stay in. And so the 23-year-old oversaw the construction of a $3.5 million hotel, which she successfully completed, and it housed the cast and crew. Wow. The movie was panned upon its release, but her work with her father was just beginning. And she was clearly very ambitious and very competent. There was a New York Times profile on the making of Dune that came out in 1983. And in it, it says how you know she speaks five languages, English, Italian, French, Spanish and Tahitian, and she would end up using four of those on a consistent basis while on the set for Dune because it was an international production. And so the point is, from what I've read, she was a very smart and it seems like well-liked, if inexperienced, producer. Sure. And Dino basically handed her the reins of Dune. So from 1980 through 1987, he and his company produced basically five big films a year, which was too many for him to be boots on the ground for across the board. So he was like, all right, you're doing Dune. And she was, I think, 27 years old at this point in time. So in what would be her first producerial recommendation, what I've read is that it was she who recommended the boyishly young-looking David Lynch to take over directing duties. Hmm. Who I just he seems like such an odd choice. Even if you look at the rest of his filmography now, Dune stands out in such an odd way, right? Uh, compared to the rest of his films. Yes and no. Like I I can understand why he might be someone that she would reach out to, especially knowing who had previously been attached and had now passed on the project. Like That's it's fair. not like there was a Ridley Scott floating around who was an obvious choice to make this. And I also feel like David Lynch like he had not taken on anything to the scale of this before and really wouldn't after either I, I don't think, but he he does have quite an eye for detail and is like huge on world building. Well, you're seeing exactly what she saw. Yeah, I don't think it's that crazy. You're smarter than me because at first I was like, wait, I know. Uh, what? But that's exactly what they saw. And yeah. what I forgot is that at the time he was this scrappy, hotshot young director and he had just been nominated for best director for his work on The Elephant Man, which I totally forgot about. So he was an Academy Award nominated director coming off of what, in retrospect, was probably his most conventional movie, The Elephant Man. You know what I mean? So it's like he could do weird with Eraserhead, and he could also do something a little more down the middle. Quick primer on Lynch. He was born in Missoula, Montana in 1946. He was a very talented artist from a young age. 
Contrary to what you might think watching his films, he was really social and very popular. And if you listen to interviews with him, he's very funny. Yes, he's very charming. He is. He's kind of a goofball. He attended the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which is now part of Tufts. He was there for a year, but he dropped out. He and his best friend, future production designer Jack Fisk, who would go on to marry Sissy Spacek hmm. and be the production designer for Terrence Malick's first eight films. So they traveled to Europe and they were like, we're going to roam Europe for a year. But after two weeks, they were disillusioned with that. So they moved back to the U.S., just disillusioned with everything. He eventually makes his way to Philadelphia. He goes to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. He meets Peggy Reevy. She gets pregnant. They get married because she's pregnant. This is important to his filmography. They have their first and only child together, a girl named Jennifer. And they move to a very high crime area of Philly because it's all they can afford. And if you know those details and you know about his first film, Eraserhead, it all makes sense. Eraserhead is about this very anxious guy whose girlfriend abandons their mutated baby for him to watch who's living in like an industrial wasteland high crime area. And it feels like David Lynch's subconscious put on the big screen. Again, he got into film basically by accident. He was a painter by training, and one day he wanted to see his paintings move, so he kind of did some crude animation. And then he got into 16-millimeter camera. He bought a 16-millimeter camera, started making short films. He made this really weird one called The Alphabet. Uh, It's just a video of his wife saying the alphabet to a series of horses before she hemorrhages blood on a bed and dies. Sounds right. And the soundtrack is just a distorted recording of his daughter crying in the background. And he just made this and he sent it to AFI and they were like, great. And they gave him some money and he, he made another movie. And it's about two boys who grow a grandmother from a seed. Sounds great too. So AFI was like, you got to come over here. And so he moves with his wife and daughter to LA. He attends AFI. Again, he gets disillusioned. He threatens to drop out, but they convince him to stay when they agree to help support him make a racer head which is like a 21-page treatment. Again, we'll do a whole episode on Eraserhead, but suffice to say, this movie took five years to make. Again, as I mentioned, it follows Henry, a quiet man with a very strange haircut who lives in an industrial wasteland, and he is left to care for a deformed baby after his girlfriend disappears. It is disturbing. It is, especially as a new parent, it's very hard to watch. So he started shooting it in May of 1972, didn't finish it until 1976. He supported himself by delivering newspapers, the Wall Street Journal. He made $50 a week. The movie got rejected by Cannes, the New York Film Festival, but it became a midnight cult movie. And specifically, Mel Brooks eventually saw it and loved it and said, kid, whatever you want to do next. And that became The Elephant Man. Oh, wow. And so in five years, Lynch went from a paper delivery man making an experimental film to an Academy Award-nominated director. And one important thing to realize and remember is he had never worked in the studio system in any way, and everything he'd ever made, he had had complete control over. Yeah. Eraserhead, because he financed it, and The Elephant Man, because Mel Brooks effectively gave him final cut over the project. Also, because neither of those are anywhere near the scope of Dune. Yes. So uh, he was actually given the chance to direct a different space epic before Dune. Any idea what that might be? Uh, is Are there other space things other than Alien and Star Wars? Star Wars, Return of the Jedi. Oh, it is Star Wars. Okay, that's my yes. guess then, Star Wars. Great, you got it right. <laughs> so George Lucas offered him the chance to direct Star Wars, Return of the Jedi. George Lucas Man, that directed- might have been a better idea because he might have had somebody there who could have reined him in a little bit and helped him. Maybe. 
Yeah. So uh, George Lucas famously didn't like directing. He didn't want it. He, he didn't direct uh, Empire Strikes Back and he didn't want to direct Return of the Jedi. He had also gotten into a dispute with the DGA over how credits were handled with the title crawl. Mm-hmm. The DGA basically was saying, well, if you're going to do the Lucasfilm logo up there, the director's name has to also go at the front of the film. He only wanted it to say Lucasfilm, then Star Wars, then the title crawl. So he wanted to hire a director that wasn't in the DGA to direct Return of the Jedi. Hmm. David Lynch was brand new. He was not yet in the DGA. So hence why Mm -hmm. he was so interested in David Lynch. He also asked David Cronenberg to direct it. And eventually a young British director, Richard Marquand, directed Hmm. Return of the Jedi. We'll do that as a separate episode. Back to Dune. Dino De Laurentiis reaches out and goes, David, do you want to direct a Dune? (laughs) And Lynch goes, June? David Lynch literally thought he was talking about a movie called June. Lynch, though, then figured out that he was talking about Dune. He read the book. He loved it. He met with Dino and Raffaella, who, according to later interviews, said he really liked them as well. He agreed to take on the project without Final Cut. Uh. Dino De Laurentiis was never going to give up Final Cut. And David Lynch took the project anyway. Things started off positively. Lynch moved into an office on the Universal lot in May of 1981, started working on the script in June with the collaborators Eric Bergen and Christopher DeVore. They had co-written The Elephant Man with him. Mm-hmm. Universal, Sid Scheinberg and MCA had picked up the project when Dino De Laurentiis had optioned it. So they were the distribution company for it. So they spent six months writing the script. And at the end of six months, they had a 200-page first draft because <laughs> nobody can get this movie short. Eventually, Bergen and DeVore left the project. I, it's unclear if they were fired or if David Lynch just didn't want to you know, keep working with them. But Lynch would go on to work on the script for another year. And finally, the sixth draft was greenlit in December of 1982. And it was 135 pages long, which just, again, seems impossible to me. Like, it's an 896-page yeah. book, the version that I have. And it's not like Harry Potter pages, you know? No, no, no. It's like dense, difficult to, uh, you know, understand, intentionally obscure. According to Lynch, though, he'd already started to compromise, even at this point, because he didn't have final cut on the project, right? It he, means he doesn't have final cut on any decision before he gets to the end of the project. Yeah. As well, because they're not going to green light a script that that's long, that's that long. He just has to keep cutting the movie down and down and compromising and finagling it to get it to the point where he thinks it can get made. Now, what should have been becoming quickly apparent to all of them was that Dino De Laurentiis talked a big game about how expensive his movies were. But in fact, he was a very, very cheap producer. This is not as bad as Battlefield Earth, Mm. but it is similar to what happened with Battlefield Earth. Check out our episode on that movie. So according to a 1987 LA Times expose of the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, he was an early pioneer of the process of pre-selling the ancillary rights for a film in order to secure its production funding. Basically, this is where you have an independent film, so it's not backed by a studio, and you need to get financing for the production. And De Laurentiis would go to foreign territories, he would go to Japan, he would go to Eastern Europe, etc., And he would say, ah, I have this hot package, Conan the Barbarian. It's this Arnold Schwarzenegger guy, sword and sorcery. And you can buy the rights to screen this movie in your territory when it's ready in a year or 18 months for $2 million. And he would do that and rack up these contracts. And once he'd sold enough of them, he would have enough money to cover his production budget in order to make the film. So he wouldn't have to go get studio backing. He wouldn't have to get a bank loan. He just had to be able to pitch the movie 
And then he could also sell, you know, VHS rights, you know, et cetera, the, the right. an- television rights, the ancillary rights. The real important consequence of this is that his producing fee is included in the production budget. So he's paid and in the black once the movie pre-sells. He doesn't need the movie to do well hmm. in order for him to cover his overhead. Got it. So unfortunately, that means from a... And I'm not accusing him of anything you know, unethical. It just means from a purely fiscal incentives perspective, he's not incentivized to ensure that the film makes money. He's only incentivized to ensure that the production costs don't exceed the amount secured through the whole, through the pre-sale process. Right. He's basically incentivized to make sure that it's distributed, but not that it actually performs. It, yeah. He, he's His only goal is I have to have a releasable movie that mm-hmm. doesn't cost me any more than my product, than what, what I've, I've already raised. Sold it for. Yeah. A, what I've already sold it for. Exactly. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So while Lynch is like, I need to spend as much as I can to make the best movie possible, De Laurentiis is saying, I need to spend as little as possible to make a releasable movie. Right. And so the desire to keep costs low is felt throughout this movie. First, the shooting location for the film. So according to an article in Cinefantastic magazine about the production, Lynch scouted the entire world, North Africa, England, Tunisia, India, Australia, the Sahara Desert, and apparently to the point where it actually took him away from writing to an almost detrimental degree. And the sad thing is they were never going to shoot in any of those locations because the only place that they could afford was Latin America. And specifically, De Laurentiis had been shooting in Mexico City. He shot Conan the Barbarian 2 there. And it became their top choice for three reasons. One, it did have the topography that they needed. Yeah. It has sand dunes and volcanoes and ocean. Uh, two, it's extremely cheap. Labor is super cheap there because right. of the exchange rate between the peso and the dollar. And three, Estudios Churubuscos was the largest self-contained filmmaking center of sound stages in South America. And it was the one set of sound stages they found that were large enough to accommodate a film this size for the requisite duration that they could afford for the year that they needed it for yeah, filming. Makes sense. Now, Lynch did put together some heavy hitters for the crew. Tony Masters, the art director for 2001 Space Odyssey, came on and was promoted to production designer for this film. I gotta say, I, I loved a lot of the production design oh, the, in this. Oh, it's, I think actually you see a lot of it influencing the Villeneuve yes, one I that agree. comes later. I agree. Well, and I, I wondered like how much of that is because the visuals in the book are so strong, but 
a hundred percent there is a visual identity between the two. Yeah, I think that a lot of it was taken from from this in a lot of ways. Yeah, so Bob Ringwood, who had just done Excalibur, came on to design the costumes, most famously the still suits that the Fremen wear, which, which I do think exactly they're resembling. Like, they look yes. very similar to the to the next generation. Bob Ringwood would go on to do the bat suit for Tim Burton's Batman nice. a few years later. Super talented. Uh, mentor Hubner and George Jensen, who had been the storyboard artists on Blade Runner and Return of the Jedi, respectively, came in as storyboard artists. Freddie Francis came on to shoot the film. He had shot The Elephant Man for David Lynch, and he'd actually won an Oscar for his work as cinematography on 1960s Sons and Daughters. And then he'd spent like 15 years directing, so he also had a directing background. And David Lynch had nothing but good things to say about the crew, and the crew had nothing but good things to say about David Lynch. Let's talk about casting really quickly, a few things. So Brad Dourif, I read, was the Mm -hmm. first person cast in the film. He's great. He was actually teaching a directing course at the time, and he didn't know who David Lynch was, but all of his students were obsessed with David Lynch because they were all obsessed with Eraserhead. Right. Uh, And then he got to be be in his movie. Uh, For anyone who doesn't know, by the way, Brad Dourif, probably most famously plays Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings series. Princess Irulan originally was supposed to be played by Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah, that makes sense. She would have just done Lady Jane, maybe? Uh, yeah, she was She was actually shooting A Room with a View Okay. at that point in time. And so there was like a slight overlap between the productions. So then they hired Australian actress Anne Louise Lambert, who had just done Picnic at Hanging Rock. Hmm. But then I don't know why she dropped out, but she did leave the project. And then Virginia Madsen was eventually cast. She was a no-name at the time. And she says David Lynch chose her based on a Polaroid that was sent to him where she was wearing a white mini dress, lace stockings, and a really weird hairdo that she had based on Star Wars. And he just saw the Polaroid and was like, she can do it. Great. Uh, And then she ended up having a much bigger part than expected because they added all that voiceover that she does towards the end. Yeah. Gurney Halleck, who's played by... Patrick Stewart, Mm -hmm. was originally supposed to be played by Aldo Ray, who's kind of like a vet. He was like a veteran character actor who had then become a leading man. He was a Columbia player. He had, um, in the 1950s, though, been opposite Rita Hayworth in Miss Sadie Thompson. And so he'd kind of become a leading man. And then he'd had a steep decline due to alcoholism and multiple divorces. In fact, he had appeared in a porn film in a non-sexual role. At this point, and so this movie actually was kind of a comeback what? opportunity for What him. was the non-sexual role? I, I don't, don't want to get know. into a tangent, but was he the pizza man or something that came in the middle of like it? Something like that. Something like that. He said he like even had a big quote about it. He's like, I wasn't even there for the sex scenes. Like they shot those all when I was gone. What? What was your part? <laughs> I don't know. His wife though was the casting director on. Dune, oh. his ex-wife. You know, she was like, God, please give him something that's not the pizza guy in the porno. And he's, he was a really good actor, um, but his drinking was such a problem that that he quietly left the production oh, at the last minute. Sad. And they brought Patrick Stewart in uh, at the last second to take the to take the role. Sting was offered the role of Fade Rautha. So funny. He didn't, he didn't want to be in the movie, but because it was David Lynch, he agreed. He was like, David Lynch is a madman. 
I will work with David Lynch. He was not into the cod piece, apparently, and was very embarrassed by it. And there are some funny clips of him on British talk shows where all they do is show him in the cod piece and like needle him. You know what's it. funny is it that shot is like less than 10 seconds. And it's yeah. the only thing I remembered about Sting being in this movie. Like in, because yes. in, I think maybe I had seen pieces of this when I was much younger. I know I've never seen the whole thing, but like the only yeah. memory I have of it is Sting in his weird like eagle diaper. And then it's like barely there. Also, he's not really in this movie that much. Uh, There is a very funny story that Patrick Stewart tells on stage that I will paraphrase. Patrick Stewart did not know who Sting was at the time. So Patrick Stewart shows up to set. He's sitting with Patrick Stewart. They're like in makeup. And Patrick Stewart's like, oh, hey, you know, how's it going? Uh, (laughs) And and Sting's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And he's like. So what else, like, you know, what have you been doing? What else have you been in? And Sting's like, well, I'm a musician. And he's like, oh, what, you know, what instrument do you play? <laughs> yeah, Patrick Stewart doesn't care. <laughs> and then Sting's like the bass. And he's like, oh, you, and he thought he meant like a bass cello. And he's like, oh, yeah, how do you carry it? And he's carried that big thing all around all the time. And Sting's like, no, 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 bass guitar. And he's like, oh, that's good. So you're in a band or something? <laughs> and Sting's like, yeah. And he goes, oh, what, what is your band called? And he's like, the police. And he goes, oh, you're in a police band? <laughs> Jesus Christ. He didn't know who the police were. Someone just hand Patrick Stewart the pug so he can run away. It was was so funny. He totally, he was so embarrassed. Patrick Stewart says too that he had a very fond time and he remains very close friends with Kyle MacLachlan amongst other cast members on the film. It seems like, honestly, people had a very good time making this movie and that everything I've read is that David Lynch is an incredibly compassionate director to work with, especially as an actor. You have to expect that he's not an asshole because these people keep working with him over and over and over again. Yes, he loves to... I mean, even Jack Nance, who is the lead in Eraserhead, plays one of the Harkonnens in this movie. Well, there's also... There's a massive amount of Twin Peaks crossovers between this and yes. Twin Peaks. Tons of people who well, came back. Well, and Blue Velvet, yes. too. Like, it, once he had worked with a number of these actors, he took he them forward in a lot them. of yeah. the movies that he ended up making. So, a couple of the casting things. Jurgen or Jurgen Proshnow was cast as Duke Leto Atreides. Mm-hmm. So, as you mentioned, Lizzie, he seems very close to Kyle MacLachlan's age. He was He's 14 years older than Kyle MacLachlan. I looked it up. He is a German actor, and he was fresh off Das Boot, Mm. Wolfgang Peterson's U-Boat epic that had just garnered six Academy Award nominations and was maybe the most successful German war film ever made at the time. My dad loves it. It's great. And and again, point being, this is a very international cast. Which was cool. Of course, Kyle MacLachlan is the real find of this film. So he's 24 years old. He is fresh out of the professional actor training program at the University of Washington, which, again, David Bowman, our producer, alum, not of that specific program, but of UW. Also, my sister Stephanie went there. I'm in Seattle recording this episode right now. Yeah, for all you, for those of you who are not Patreon subscribers, you cannot see yeah. that Chris is in his sister's childhood bedroom, but he is. Yes, not the one that went to UW, but the other one. <laughs> Dune was Kyle's first feature film. Really? In fact, it's his first non-stage acting role ever. He does a pretty good job. He does do a pretty good job. Now, of course, this had kind of been done before. Mark Hamill was a relatively unknown TV actor, but he had acted on camera when he was cast as Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. So McLaughlin was living in Seattle working on a play. He gets a call from a casting director who wants him to tape for the movie. Kyle McLaughlin turns out huge Dune fan. That tracks. (laughs) So he tapes 
They send it to David Lynch. David Lynch likes him. They fly him to LA, his first time in LA. He does the screen test. David Lynch walks him through the screen test. Apparently, he would give him directions like, Kyle, calm down. A little more like Elvis this time. Or just, Kyle, think about the wind. Or apparently, sometimes he'd just walk up and he'd be like, we wouldn't say anything. David would just look at the ground. We'd kick some rocks. And then we'd just look at each other and nod. And I'd know what I had to do. They had this like spirit animal like bond between them, which sounds very lovely. Rounding out the cast, one other person I want to mention, Jose Ferrer. He plays Mm -hmm. the emperor. He was perhaps the most celebrated Hispanic actor working at the time. He was the first Hispanic actor, he's Puerto Rican, to win Best Actor for his role as Cyrano de Bergerac in the 1950 film Cyrano de Bergerac. Again, just amazing cast. And of course, you have Max von Sydow and Paul Smith and so many other great actors we don't have time to get into. March 30th, 1983, production begins. It's massive. 80 sets, 16 sound stages, months and months and months of construction. The budget was set at $45 million. Raffaella told the New York Times that in Hollywood, the film would have cost over $75 million to make, but making it in Latin America, that saves them almost 50%. A quick point of reference on the budget, Return of the Jedi was budgeted at $32.5 million. However, that film benefited from having a smaller cast and an in-house visual effects team Lucasfilm owned ILM. Right, that makes sense. And so they saved a lot of money in the sense that they had been working together for years and years and years, and they knew kind of what they were doing going into it. Mm -hmm. So what does $45 million buy you? It buys you 53 speaking roles in the film. That's crazy. Yes. 20,000 extras, 900 crew members, including a team of 200 Mexican laborers that were responsible for clearing out every piece of cactus, scorpion, and snake that could be found on a three-mile square patch of desert that would act as the planet Arrakis where nothing could grow. It took them two months to clean this part of the desert out. Wow. And all those cast and crew and uh, cast and extras, they need costumes. As Bob Ringwood, the costume designer, said, basically there are about 10 fundamental styles of clothing, which covers people from all four planets. From these basic patterns, we'll make about 4,000 costumes. Not 4,000 riffs on 10 costumes, 4,000 unique costumes across 20,000 people. That's crazy. Now, shooting in Mexico caused a number of problems. They didn't have consistent electricity. They could not run the sewing machines or the fax machines at certain times because the grid kept going out. And everybody got Giardia. Sure. Um, According to Raffaella, 15% of the crew was in and out of the hospital for the first week, six weeks in the country. The food poisoning hit the cast as well. Virginia Madsen, in some of her scenes as a princess, had to be propped up on a stool underneath her giant dress because she was so exhausted from diarrhea ing yeah. that she could not stand up. Great. And so they would just put a stool underneath her giant skirt and she would just sit there looking zoned out like the princess. It actually got so bad that Raffaella brought in a private chef from Italy and opened her own restaurant on the studio's premises to feed the cast and crew. But unfortunately, the 1,000 pounds of spaghetti that were brought with the chef (laughs) ended up stuck in customs for three months. Mm. Now, to her credit, she was actually spoken of quite reverently by a number of the crew members after the fact. Tony Masters, production designer, told the New York Times, she is a mother to us all. You only have to catch a cold and she'll send you to Los Angeles for an x-ray. This does not sound like a film where people were 
being forced into horrible conditions constantly. Rainstorms almost every day between 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. plagued the shoot. Remember, it never rains on Arrakis. They can't shoot during the rain. Right. And of course, they had enormous special effects, not the least of which were the sandworms. Which look pretty good. Look really good. And that's because Carlos Rambaldi was brought in to create them, and he had just done E.T., Okay, yeah. The sandworms, I think, hold up better than any other part of the film. 100%. Special effects. The other special effects are questionable. Pretty bad. The sandworms yeah. are great. They're bad for a specific reason. So the sandworms, they spent over $2 million on them. So here's a quote from Rambaldi after the fact. The longest ones were 20 feet long. They were capable of opening their mouths, revealing multiple rows of teeth, mm-hmm. as well as craning their bodies up and down and from side to side. Then there were medium-scale worms that could do some gyrations, and then there were about a half dozen small worms only meant for background action. The problem was that when they're shooting these worms as miniatures, because even the 20-foot one is not, you know, 200 feet, which is what it's supposed to be, they could use forced perspective, Mm -hmm. they could use miniature sets, but no matter what they did, you cannot hide the fact that as humans, we know what sand looks like. And so... When you see anything next to sand, you actually get a sense of its scale immediately Mm. because sand grains are actually pretty big. And so they couldn't use sand for the sandworms. So they used what's called microspheres or micro balloons. And basically this is like tiny, 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 tiny micromillimeter thick glass spheres. It's circular asbestos. Basically. Yeah, I was going to say, this seems like a health concern. It is. So the cast and crew, when they were working around this, had to wear like tons of PPE. But the problem is it's so small that it can actually get through your PPE yeah. and it can actually get into your skin and irritate your skin and get into your bloodstream. So it was really nasty. I don't think they allow people to use this uh, on movie sets to create dust anymore. Because no, it it's seems caused bad. so many problems. Yeah. So other issues, the volcano where they shot some of the Fremen scenes, turns out it was the place where locals disposed of dead dogs. So it was actually, the location was renamed the Dead Dog Dump. Jesus Um, Christ. (laughs) Yeah. David Lynch liked a lot of takes, which slowed them down, and he was actively rewriting the script during production. They just had new pages constantly as they were trying to figure out a way to make the story make sense. The cast and crew were constantly covered in dust and sand. They suffered coughing fits, and the temperatures often exceeded 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Adding insult to injury was the fact that everybody out in the desert had to wear these still suits, right. which the still suits in the book recycle your water and keep you cool. In real Not life, in real they life. are giant condoms that yeah. are making you sweat everything out of your body. Yeah, this sounds horrible. Yeah, apparently Francesca Annis weighed herself at the beginning of a day, and then at the end of the day, and she had sweated out three pounds of water. Jeez. And she looks like she probably weighs 97 pounds to begin with. So yeah. that's not good. Paul Smith, who plays uh, Robin the Brute, Robin the Beast. Yeah, yeah. The big one of the two nephews. Exactly. Yeah. He said that there's this scene where he climbs up the side of the sand dune and he's like, we will, you know, conquer this planet. He said it was miserable. And that then when they were shooting his close-ups, he started sinking into the sand. And so the camera operator was having to tilt the camera <laughs> to follow his head. Oh, so no. he was sinking down the sand dune. So it just caused all sorts of problems. Now, you mentioned the special effects. I think the matte paintings look great. I think the miniatures look great. I yes. think the sandworms look great. Anything that requires more sophisticated visual compositing. It's a little rough. The shots of the ornithopter, the shots of the spaceships moving, those look years behind 
Star Wars. I know. And it was blowing my mind because like I kept pausing it and going back to check the year this came out because I was like, yeah. wait, this looks like shit. Like, why, why does this look like this? Like the, the I'm sure we're going to get to this, but the horrible block shield suits, just yeah. nightmare town. And the yeah. way that the ships moved, I was like. Yeah. It this all is, just looks like 2D pieces of paper, like moving around. Yeah, this is, around. what, almost 10 years after the first Star Wars? Seven, yeah. I yeah, mean, it, it um, looks like it came out 20 years before it. Like, it it does not look right. So, what ha- What I, I've pieced together, John Dykstra was one of the founding members of ILM. He had come on to be the VFX supervisor early in the process, he apparently had some sort of disagreement with Dino De Laurentiis. I think it was over budget because what they were trying to do was expensive. De Laurentiis probably didn't want to pay for it. Right. And so he left the project midway through production. Looks like it. They didn't hire a new VFX company to do the VFX for the project. Instead, De Laurentiis hired a bunch of different people from different countries to come in and they kind of piecemealed a new VFX. They built an in-house VFX team that then handled all of the effects work in Mexico. But they did not have the experience with or access to the level of equipment that ILM had been developing for like the last 10 to 15 years. So they really cheaped out on special effects. Brad Dourif actually in a later interview said, that it really broke David Lynch and like broke his heart because the things that he wanted to do and that John Dykstra had said he would be able to do simply were not possible with this new team. That's not a knock on the new team. They were given an impossible task. But there's two big problems with this movie. This is one of them that yeah. it it just does not look very good. I think it probably didn't look very good at the time. It's not mm-hmm. even something that like didn't hold up that well. And no, critics at the time said it looked cheap in a lot of its yes. sequences. Production design, everything beautiful. Costumes, beautiful. Yeah. It, but VFX, just like shockingly not good. And then yeah. the other one I'm sure we will get to, but it is the pacing, pacing? of the second yeah. half of this movie. Yes. We'll get there. Uh, one or two other small things in production. They hired the Mexican army to provide 3,500 soldiers as extras only for the army members to show up to set one week early. No one was there to film them. I couldn't find confirmation of this fact. So take this with a grain of salt, but I'm 99% sure this is true. Lynch and De Laurentiis were constantly arguing over the lighting of the film. Hmm. Specifically, De Laurentiis wanted the film to be lit brighter for VHS release because when you played a VHS on your home TV, it's, the image is much darker yeah. than when you see it on a big screen at the theater. And De Laurentiis was more concerned with the VHS release and the ancillary markets that he had sold yep. than he was with the, the theatrical. So again, another just clash of visions and intents. Principal photography for Dune ended in September of 1983. So it ran from May to September. Second unit and effects photography continued on since they did in-house effects and concluded in January of 1984. Okay. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not going to get into music a ton, but Toto, Toto. were brought in to do the film's score. I kind of liked it. <laughs> I thought the score was great. Yeah. Obviously, Furry Fredrickson, their lead singer, did not participate. Brian Eno, if you'll notice, is yeah. credited with one track, the prophecy theme. I didn't get a chance to deep dive this, but I did read that it's rumored that Brian Eno had done an entire first pass at the score for the film. I mean, that would make sense. Yeah, and that they only kept one track and then they brought Toto in to redo the other stuff that they didn't like. You have to imagine that Brian Eno's was just way too weird. I mean, I I would love to have heard what it was, but Toto is a much more conventional choice to bring in. a lot of electric guitar running through Toto during it, exactly. There's a lot of like, as they're going up the sand dunes, which I like. Again, Again, I couldn't find confirmation of that fact, but it... It, it would, like Lizzie said, it would make sense. It's unusual that Brian Eno's brought in only for like one obscure, you know what I mean? Yeah. One theme. That that's, doesn't normally happen. Of course, okay, we're getting to the what you keep bringing up, Lizzie, and it's the biggest issue. And yeah, that is the film. Bonkers. The film's running. The film's running time. So <laughs> so the, the first cut of the film was over four hours. And then David Lynch's preferred cut, what I guess you would call his director's cut, ran just over three hours long. Which, again, we have covered a book of this length before. It's Gone with the Wind. And that movie runs, what, three hours and 40 minutes long? And they cut a shitload out of that book. And that is nowhere near as detailed a universe as this is. So Universal and De Laurentiis said that the longest the movie could be was two hours and 17 minutes because that's the longest runtime that wouldn't cause them to lose a screening time slot with the theatrical release. We've talked and about so, this on Titanic before as well. It Lizzie, is, yeah, why don't you go ahead and explain it? Well, so it's it's a gamble with a longer movie, and it's part of the reason that they, did, they had concerns about Titanic's runtime is because you are essentially, if you think about, obviously, movie theaters are only open a certain number of hours each day. So the longer your movie is, that means the fewer number of times it can be played per screen each day. So you're potentially losing ticket money because not as many people can see the movie in in a 24-hour span. Exactly. So you can feel the cuts in this movie. Yeah, they're, they make no sense. The first hour of the movie, I think, more or less tracks. It if does. You've, especially if you've read the books. I've read the books. I read the book, the first one. It was a while ago, but I've read it, so I'm familiar with the world. I had seen the Denis Villeneuve film twice, I had no idea what was happening in the back half of this movie. I So as someone who has not read the book and has only seen the Denis Villeneuve um, version, I 
was shocked at how long they spent on what is essentially Dune part one, what we saw Denis Villeneuve cover. That is literally the first hour and 20 minutes yeah, to 30 minutes right. of this movie. Yeah, hour, I was going to say hour and a half. Yes, is just what's covered in this. And then all of us, and I was like, well, what the shit? Like, what, what's going to happen in part two? It cuts to what becomes like... A multi-year <laughs> it becomes like, like a, It becomes like a best of montage yep, of two. For 45 minutes. Which, I, I mean, I was sort of tracking what was happening but then i was also like jessica's pregnant with a demon baby and it's showing up and now how did it get to the emperor none of it makes it's pretty it's pretty wild like it, it becomes like an experimental music video for the last 45 minutes of this thing all right so lynch cuts the movie down to the exact mandated runtime of two hours and 17 minutes the only way they can do this is if they add some new photography to flesh out the montages and more importantly they bring virginia madsen in to do all this voiceover and direct camera addressing to explain what's happening in the movie and so in the end david lynch finds himself in the exact position he'd wanted to avoid when he turned down return of the jedi he wasn't making his movie, he was making De Laurentiis's movie. It doesn't make any sense. There was one last insult to injury. According to Harlan Ellison, Universal effectively killed the film just before its release. So this is a quote from Harlan. It was widely rumored in the gossip underground that Frank Price, chairman of MCA Universal's motion picture group and one of the most powerful men in the industry, had screened the film in one or another of its final workups. So this is right before it was going to get released. Yeah. And had declared vehemently enough and publicly enough for the words to quickly have seeped under the door of the viewing room and formed a miasma over the entire Universal lot. This film is a dog. It's going to drop dead. We're going to take a bath on it. Nobody will understand it. End quote. I, I mean, not wrong. Like, if you're trying to make something that's even remotely accessible for people that don't have any experience with Dune, this is not it. Like, I came yeah. in at least with the precursor of having seen a movie version of this that makes sense. If I didn't have that, I don't know that I would have even been able to, like, maintain attention throughout this yeah. although it looks great so so maybe i would but yeah uh, regardless people at universal freaked out they canceled all of the scheduled review screenings in advance of the release date which of course just pissed off the critics that yeah. wanted to see the movie so anybody that was going to give it the benefit of the doubt is now, now going to hate on it mm -hmm. dune was released on december 14th 1984 it grossed $31 million in North America during its initial run. Hey. That's against a budget of $45 million. Now, it should be said that despite being considered a flop, David Lynch has publicly said that the budget was far lower than $45 million, that the $45 million, similar to Battlefield Earth, is just what Dino De Laurentiis said it was. I believe that. And the movie was largely not marketed. De Laurentiis felt that they could get by with the fact that it was a well-known book right. and that David Lynch was a well-known director. So they probably didn't spend a ton on marketing either. So it was a flop, but I don't think it was as big a flop as we've talked about from a pure numbers perspective. Critics were very derisive of the project. Siskel and Ebert said it was the worst film of 1984. The New York Times said, quote, several of the characters in Dune are psychic, which puts them in the unique position of being able to understand what goes on in this movie, <laughs> which I thought was a pretty good burn. The film was also hammered for being homophobic. 
associating homosexuality with all of Baron Harkonnen's most vile traits, including psychopathy and bloodlust. So, what? Yeah, Baron Harkonnen is gay. In oh. the book, it's more that he's like a pedophile. Is that why he? Because he's kind of like leering at Sting. He that that's right. Okay. That he's yeah. He's he leers at young men. In the book, it's implied like pubescent young men, like oh. Paul Atreides, because Paul Atreides is fifteen in the book, and it's implied that the Baron is sexually attracted to him. And the book was criticized for the same thing. I think defenders huh. of the book try to make the point that it's not that he's gay, it's that he's a pedophile. But Dennis Altman, an Australian academic and gay rights activist, I think made the, a, a very good point where he criticized the choice to put, portray the one gay character in the film as suffering from an open wound skin disease during mm. the height of the AIDS epidemic. So oh. it, again, I'm not, I don't think David Lynch intended any of this, but it was not a great look and it's, it's on top of the movie yeah. not being great. You know, it, it, it doesn't feel like a very thoughtful choice. I didn't even get that. So I, yeah, that went way over my head, but I did yeah. wonder why he was staring so much at Sting in his little wings diaper. So that, that tracks, I guess. A longer version of the film was released for television a few years later. Ironically, this is the version that David Lynch had his name removed from. So people sometimes say David Lynch had his name removed from Dune. He didn't, not the original one. He did have it removed from the longer version because he was not involved in the re-edit. Gotcha. So he's credited as Alan Smithy, which is yeah, yeah. what the DGA uses when a director doesn't want their name on a project. Contrary to persistent online rumors, there is no director's cut of the film floating around. There's no, like, better David Lynch version. As he says, he's like, there's other versions that have more stuff, but it's still <laughs> the same flawed yeah. movie. As we mentioned, he was never working toward a final cut that he could control, so he mm -hmm. feels, in retrospect, that every decision he made was flawed going into the movie. Dino De Laurentiis and David Lynch would ironically go on to make Lynch's next film... Blue Velvet together because they had a contract where Lynch had to make another movie oh, with wow. Dino De Laurentiis. However, Blue Velvet was the smallest film that Laurentiis was making at the time, budgeted at a mere $6 million, so Lynch was left entirely alone to do whatever he wanted. There you go. And he had final cut, so he had a wonderful time. Yep. De Laurentiis took his film group public in 1986. He raised $240 million in the process. Raffaella left the company in 1987 a move that apparently deeply pained Dino. They then had a string of flops and were bankrupt in 1988. Interesting. De is producing output plummeted in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, across those two decades, his name was only on 19 films, but he had produced over 500 across his 40-year career. Wow. He died in 2010. Oh, wow. Raffaella went on to produce Dragonheart, among many other films. She's still active today, though none of her recent credits approach the scope or scale of Dune. Okay. Of course, David Lynch went on to continue to work with many of the cast and crew mm -hmm. from Dune, most notably Kyle MacLachlan, collaborating on Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks, but of course others as well. Many others, yeah. He does not like to speak of Dune during interviews, and he considers it his one true failure. And so, Lizzie, I'd like to end by sharing with you David Lynch on the importance of Final Cut to conclude this episode. Dune, it wouldn't be fair to say it was a total nightmare, but maybe 75% nightmare. 
And the reason is I didn't have final cut. I had such a great time in, in Mexico City, the greatest crew, cast, it was beautiful. But when you don't have final cut, and I knew this already, but why did I do it? I don't know. But when you don't have final cut, total creative freedom, you stand to die the death. Die the death. And died I did. Aw, I love David Lynch. So, Lizzie, that is a very truncated, but still long, much like Dune, yeah. episode on what went wrong on Dune. Lizzie, I think that brings us to our favorite section. What went right? Well, what went right is the one thing that I can't fucking believe you didn't talk about, which is that pug. Audience, I will do a follow-up. I'm going to figure Please. out. The pug did not come up during my research. I, of course, noticed the pug while watching. It's didn't so come up during my research. funny. I will figure out what the hell is up with the pug. We were watching it, and David was like, did David Lynch just hedge his bets that this could just be like a cult comedy in case it was a total shit show? And I was like, I don't know, because I loved that thing. So obviously, number one, pug. But number two, I would say like the visual ident- identity of this movie, visual effects aside, the production design, the costumes are great. It looked great. And and that clearly has carried through into this next version that we're now seeing a little bit as well. Um, so yeah, overall, I didn't hate it. My what went right is Kyle MacLachlan in the sense that I, I think he's fine yeah he's fine i think he gets better as in his career as he goes on as we all should he's a little too weird for this yeah but cast more unknown actors in lead roles so i had this horrible nightmare the other day that uh well it was actually kind of funny tom cruise died in like a space accident that's but they possible. were not done making tom cruise movies so they just decided they were gonna have an ai oh yeah don't need him yeah, may, you know, replace Tom Cruise and hire an actor to play him in all these different movies. And it made me realize, like, oh, we actually might not need any more movie stars. And that the f- no. with AI and everything, the future of movies is, of course, just going to be like, would you like to watch this film with uh, Tom Cruise as the lead? Or would you like to watch it with Tom Hanks as the lead? Or would you or like to watch it's gonna it be with me uh, saying, I want, James Dean? It'll be me saying, I would like to see... Gone with the Wind, starring Jennifer Lawrence. And they'll be like, you got it, kid. You want a rocket ship in it? And I'll be like, yes, I do. (laughs) And so there will be no need to cast new and unknown and uh, therefore financially risky people in any of these movies, which I think is a terrible travesty. So um, I just like that they took a chance on someone. And and that broke Kyle McLaughlin in. And and we should do that with more people. And not just, you know, not just white dudes from Seattle. Not that there's anything wrong with those guys being one of them. So I'll go with Kyle McLaughlin cast unknowns from time to time yeah all right guys that concludes our coverage of dune thank you as always for taking this journey deep into the heart of arrakis together i apologize for the many things that i pronounced incorrectly if you write me a review that takes me to task about it i will probably make fun of you in the next episode lizzie any house cleaning before we go no i just want to tease what we do have coming up in terms of the next episode because i am i don't know that i've ever been this excited about an episode that we are doing friends i am going to be going down possibly the darkest hole i have gone down on this podcast (laughs) so far 
I'm, and that's mommy's hole. Is this what we're saying? <laughs> I am. I'm covering Mommy Dearest, um, yes. the movie based on the memoir written by Joan Crawford's daughter Christina, <laughs> uh, starring Faye Dunaway. And my God, it is. It is a mess beyond just what you see on the screen to a degree that I had no idea. So I'm very excited. Very excited. Guys, make sure you watch Mommy Dearest. I have not seen it. I'm very excited You've to see it. You've never seen it? I've never seen it. Oh, my God. I'll leave you with this, possibly my favorite line from the movie. Christina, bring me the axe. Great. I will watch that with my wife. It'll be a great <laughs> She's going to love it. <laughs> she is going to love it. Do you want to give a shout out to our full stop supporters? I do. Tom Kristen and Soman Chinani, thank you so much, full stop, for supporting us on Patreon. We just posted last week a great interview with Phil Blade. Yes. The production sound mixer academy award-winning production sound mixer of darius martyr's sound of metal starring riz ahmed guys if you sign up for our patreon you can check out that interview with a whole lot of other great content yeah he was great we are also going to do another actually we've just we've already we will we will have already launched it another opportunity for you to vote on what episode chris covers next dune was the result of one of those as was the mummy and I got some good ones for you guys to pick from. So pretty excited about that. What's in this poll this time? Well, let's just say one of them features the greatest song of the 2000s, All Star by Smash Mouth. Oh, Shrek! (laughs) Yes. And I hope that Shrek wins because it's a doozy. So guys, check out our Patreon. Vote for your next film. Send us your recommendations. Slide into our DMs, guys. Please do. And with that, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Okay. Bye. Use the voice. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Euthana Yuvos. 